Hi, everybody. Welcome to Beyond Awakening, the future of spiritual practice. This is Terry Patton, the creator and host. And for anybody there who doesn't already know me, I'm also the founder and teacher of Integral Spiritual Practice and the author of Integral Life Practice with Ken Wilber. I created this series to serve the evolution of consciousness and culture by creating a wide-ranging and deep public dialogue about how the evolution of consciousness can play a real role in helping human beings rise to meet our current challenges and to make as benign as possible a transition to a sustainable human presence on our planet. I've now held almost 100 uh, remarkable conversations ranging around this topic with many of today's leading thought leaders and spiritual teachers. Once you've registered at beyondawakeningseries.com, they're all available for free download at beyondawakeningseries.com slash blog. This morning I'll be joined by Amir Ahmad Nasser. We're going to continue that discussion in a conversation entitled The Birth Pangs of an Integral Islam. I'll introduce Amir and then we'll dialogue for about an hour. And then I'll make some announcements and we'll spend about half an hour taking any questions. And that, So we'll be finishing up in about 90 minutes. Amir Ahmad Nasser is the formerly anonymous Arab Spring activist behind the internationally acclaimed socio-political blog, The Sudanese Thinker, infamously credited with helping to inspire the rise of the Sudanese digital activism scene. In 2013, at the age of 26, Amir's first book was released, the memoir, My Islam, How Fundamentalism Stole My Mind and Doubt Freed My Soul. The A in Islam is a an ampersand, uh, you know, an at, an at sign like uh, an email address. Uh, this forced him to seek political asylum in Canada. The book was recommended by Foreign Policy among 25 books to read in 2013, along with books by Pulitzer Prize winners and former diplomats and military personalities. From its explorations of the root causes of fundamentalism to its assessment of the new atheists, including uh, Sam Harris, the book tackles a wide range of pertinent issues that continue to dominate the headlines. During his decade-long work at the intersection of culture, digital media, and current affairs, Amir has shared the stage with Nobel Peace laureates, former presidents, and fellow entrepreneurs, and was highlighted by Wired as a formidable speaker. He's been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, the Guardian, the Economist, Bloomberg, Al Jazeera English, CBC, and many more media outlets in over 12 languages across the globe. He's also a personal friend. I've known Amir for five years, and I've witnessed his emergence onto the public stage. He's not only passionate about creating conditions conducive to reform in the Middle East and the wider Muslim world. He understands deeply and authentically that it's an integral affair. And he's committed to the application of integral tools and practices in service of cultural evolution in the Muslim world. Another thing I deeply appreciate about Amir, Amir is that he's genuine. He's a practitioner. I've been watching integral Islam being born in him and through his own experience. So thanks so much for being here with us today, Amir. Thank you very much for having me, Terry. It's my honor. Well, great. Uh, in this conversation, I'd really like those turning in to get a taste of what this integral Islamic spirituality feels like through getting to know you and the story of your journey of spiritual deepening 
and and for listeners to better understand the emergence of what we've called the birth pangs. Uh, but to do that effectively, we really have to point to some big elephants in the room so we can at least get that out of the way. Uh, this week, uh, Islam has been increasingly in the news headlines for all the wrong reasons, and uh, many Westerners and uh, many Americans uh, are suspecting that there's something inherently violent about Islam. Are, are they being bigoted? Uh, you know, like we recently witnessed on uh, Real Time with Bill Maher, you know, Ben Affleck seems to think that saying uh, that Islam is prone to violence is, is gross and, 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 and bigoted. But people like Sam Harris and, and Bill, you know, clearly feel like Islamic violence is an expression of deep problems with Islamic ideas in the Koran and in Islam itself. What are your thoughts about that? Wow. You know, there are numerous points in that question that need addressing. And so first, let's start with the word Islam itself. Um, what does Islam mean? And how do people perceive Islam, you know, depending on their experiences? If you look at the word Islam, it really comes from the root Arabic word silm, which means peace or surrender. For a lot of Westerners, you know, they've come across the word submission, that Islam means submission. And, you know, this word submission is troublesome because it can be understood as, you know, a subservient kind of submission to the will of God, right, in this very authoritarian manner, you know, where he presides over you. And you can understand submission as surrender, you know, submitting to the will of God and, and surrendering willfully to the grand mystery of existence. Um, two very different interpretations of that word, which really convey also very different ways of practicing the faith that we see today. So some really see it as submission to the will of God, where you know we have to follow God's commands, whatever they are, and, and, and be totally dedicated, where others are focused more on the spiritual dimension of spiritual surrender. Now, you know, you know, coming, Amir, I've, I've always uh, heard that the more spiritually fragrant way of interpreting the meaning of the word was uh, total surrender from the heart. That that was the best way to, you know, positively understand the the meaning of the word Islam. Right, and and see that that's a very you know um, that's a definition with a very strong spiritual orientation, and I I would personally agree with that. Um, because that is really how a lot of people understand it to be and how they live their lives. Unfortunately, however, there is a large segment that does live, you know, in accordance to this um, authoritarian dictate of, of, of what Islam should be and how it should be lived and practiced, and they buy into that. And so when Westerners say, you know, or ask, is there something inherently violent about Islam? You know, we have to understand that Islam emerged in a context that was very politically charged and where there was a lot of warfare. And if you look at the example of the Prophet Muhammad in accordance to the Islamic tradition, he was not just a spiritual religious leader, he was also a political leader and he was also a military commander. And then of course there was Muhammad just a man. And again, this is from the perspective of the Islamic tradition. So you have 
Muhammad the spiritual religious leader, Muhammad the political leader, Muhammad the military leader, and then Muhammad the man. I have distinguished all these different four roles, as many Muslims do. Unfortunately, however, that's not the case with everyone. These roles are all fused together. And so therefore, when his example is assessed and when the religion is looked at, and when Muhammad is held as an example to be followed for all times and all places, there are many Muslims who do see his, you know, him as a role model who should be followed even today, which of course then creates a lot of problems. And so when you look at also, you know, liberals like Ben Affleck and, and Sam Harris and Bill Maher and, you know, what they point out, we must acknowledge that there is a cultural fault line. You know, to, to say that Islam is violent and supports terrorism, that would be false. The consensus of the mainstream scholars is quite clear. If we want to be more specific, however, and say that Islam tends to be illiberal, well, I would say that Islam in the way that it's taught and practiced by the majority of Muslims around the Muslim world um, does tend to be illiberal indeed. Um, so things like freedom of speech, you know, the right to commit blasphemy, uh, the right to apostasy, the right to leave the faith, these things unfortunately aren't accepted in wider Muslim societies around the Muslim world, and it's very troublesome. However, when you look at Muslims living in the West who were cultured in the West, in liberal democracies, they see um, you know, the, the right to commit blasphemy as a right. You know, they don't see apostasy as, as a taboo for the most part. There are, of course, pockets of Muslim communities, let's say in Europe, that aren't very well integrated into the mainstream culture who do have troubles with those um, with those norms that are that are accepted in in Western democracies, and so there are many different aspects that we need to look at. Um, but ultimately, really, the spiritual essence, the esoteric essence of Islam, if that is the core focus, then there's a lot of beauty to be explored there. Quite frankly, and and we don't see much discussion about that. However, if we look at the exoteric aspects of Islam, as they're still being taught and practiced today by too many Muslims, unfortunately, there are many issues, especially if we look at those, um, those doctrines from the perspective of classical liberalism and from the perspective of universal human rights. That... Um This the, the this is really the roots of this you know kind of bind where we 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 have this complicated and challenging discussion uh, in the West among liberals and 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 the complaint is you know often voiced more on the right here in the United States that the moderate Muslims are are not speaking out and taking a stand against all of this stuff. Um, Maybe you can help give us some insight into that. This this very complicated discussion in the West among liberals is probably fueled to a large degree by our complete lack of comprehension of what it's really like inside the Islamic and Arab worlds. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is a complicated discussion because the truth of the matter is, you know, we, we can unpack this question and have an entire dialogue just focused about this question alone, right? We can talk and talk about it. There is so much to address. But there are some things that just need to be taken into account, and I'll mention them quite briefly. Within the United States, and let's just take the United States specifically, because even saying the West 
it's too broad and different countries have different circumstances. So, for instance, France and the United States, completely different circumstances, different history, different relationship between, you know, the nation state and its Muslim minority. But let's look at America, for, for instance. In the United States, you know, there's a lot of sensitivity when it comes to the treatment of minorities. And so when a lot of criticism gets made there about Muslims in general, inevitably those um, criticisms are going to be targeted at the American uh, Muslim community within the United States as a minority. And so a lot of liberals are naturally sensitive to that because, you know, the Muslims, they're a minority and they've been harassed, they've been targeted unfairly after 9-11 because of suspicions and so on and so forth. So, you know, they do feel victimized, you know, in many cases, I think, for legitimate reasons. Maybe in some cases, it's, you know, there, there are too many sensitivities and so on and so forth. So within the context of America, that's one complication. You know, how do you scrutinize beliefs without scrutinizing believers and, and, and you know, without ascribing those alleged beliefs to the believers? I mean, we don't even know to what extent they believe those beliefs. So that's within the context of the United States. Now, if we look at the context of the wider Muslim world, there are some factors that also need to be taken into consideration. In order for moderates to really come out onto the streets, you know, the truth is we haven't really seen that happen in a big way unless we look at the Arab Spring's initial phase, you know, when Tahrir Square was filled with throngs of thousands upon thousands of young progressive youth. And, you know, we had these amazing, wonderful scenes um, on TV, and, and, and they were very euphoric and thrilling. You know, if we take that as an exception, just put it aside, in general, you don't have a lot of people going out and protesting on the streets for the simple fact that the majority of countries in the Middle East are authoritarian. They're not even democracies. And if we were to go out and say, you know, we denounce violence, we want freedoms and justice and equality, then that also threatens the paradigm of the nationalist dictators, the secular dictators. And because of that dynamic, it's difficult to even talk about religious reform because if we're going to talk about religious reform, inevitably we're going to talk about reforming authoritarianism in any stripe, authoritarianism in religious garb, authoritarianism in military garb, um, or in secular nationalistic garb. And so it becomes very challenging. However, there is a lot of great stuff happening online that we just haven't seen yet um, tra you know, transform and translate into real-life action. And, and I'm sure, you know, we're, we're going to get into that in a bit as we discussed. Well, uh, you know, there's also a background that I now understand because, you know, we've had some conversations leading up to this dialogue. And you've, you've shared with me some facts that really surprised me, really positive things that are pretty much unknown uh, in the West about uh, the way that there really is a transformation underway in the Muslim world. Um, maybe you can share some of that and talk about what you see as their significance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there, there are two huge trends that are not really being taken into account. And these two trends, and I'll describe them broadly. The first one is really the changing media landscape. You know, when I was young, I remember that I had only two channels on TV. Literally, that, that's all we had, two channels on TV. And then all of a sudden, cable TV appeared, and then people started you know, smuggling and setting up satellite dishes on, on the roof of their home secretly. And now we have like, access to hundreds and hundreds of challenges, um, to, to um, hundreds of, of channels. 
right? So that changed the landscape. And then, of course, later on, we got the Internet. And now the Internet is causing huge, huge ramifications. The first wave that we really saw was during the Arab Spring. You know, people described it as the Twitter revolution and the Facebook revolution. And for me, as somebody who was engaged in you know, online and social media activism since 2006, you know, I could tell you that there was a huge buildup towards the Arab Spring. And so the Internet is, is, is changing things. You know, now we can access information that we never had access to. We can sift through tons and tons of religious books and, and religious texts and materials that had we had to do that you know, in a library, my goodness, we, we would have to borrow so many books and we would have to search through those books page by page, whereas now with Google and Wikipedia and the Internet, it's, it's, it's so easy. You, you can cross-reference. You can check different things. You know, there's so many videos on YouTube. Not only that, but with mobile smartphones, you know, they've gotten so cheap um, in, 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 you know, all, all over the world, you know, perhaps not smartphones like the iPhone, but they're getting cheaper and cheaper. And, and even those who don't even make much money who would be considered poor have access now to smartphones and, and regular handphones, you know, um, cell phones all over the Middle East and North Africa. So this is spreading. This is, this is causing huge ramifications. And I'll get into the details of that in a moment. So let's just look at that trend in terms of technology and what technology is doing. The other thing that's happening, of course, is the demographic shift. The Arab world, um, and this has been talked quite a lot about, has a huge youth bulge. That, that's what it's been described as. Um, the majority of the populations, I don't have the exact statistics right now, um, but roughly speaking, you know, about 40, 50, even 60 percent of the populations in many of these countries are youth, people who are, you know, in their late teens and, and their 20s, very much so. So, so, so this, when you take this into account and you understand and see that, you know, the youth today get their media consumption, unlike the older generation, we get the media consumption from the Internet and from satellite TV, and, and it's causing a shift in consciousness. Now, has this shift in consciousness been enacted yet? No, because we have older generations who are still in power and who are still ruling over us in a very paternalistic manner who are preventing this change from happening. Now, that's not to say that all the youth is enlightened and, you know, oh, my goodness, the Internet is, is such a wonderful thing. Everybody is becoming enlightened. That's not the case. People are using the Internet also for terrible um, things. But let's get into the details. Why should we be excited? And I shared this earlier, right? The highest rate of consumption per capita of YouTube in the entire world is in Saudi Arabia. Which demographic specifically? Young women. What kind of videos on YouTube? Education videos. Let's look at Saudi Arabia again. The top 10 YouTube channels in Saudi Arabia, the majority of them are comedy shows that have been started by youth from their homes and have grown and grown and grown in, into just massive media platforms. And, you, you know, you'd probably be pleased to, to, to hear this. Many of those youth, when they were asked, you know, who are some of your inspirations, one of the inspirations that they consistently bring up is Jon Stewart of The Daily Show. Jon Stewart has had an amazing, amazing impact, I think, beyond just the United States that a lot of Americans aren't even aware of. Hmm. Right? And so these youth, I mean, the majority of the top ten, I believe seven, seven out of the top ten most popular um, YouTube shows in, in Saudi Arabia are by youth who talk about, 
you know, society, talk about religion, talk about politics. And they do so in a way that's subtle. It's not as blunt as Jon Stewart. You know, they have to watch out, and sometimes they self-censor. But it's still very daring. And these young individuals have become celebrities in their home countries in Saudi Arabia. And they're so popular that even the government can't really just take them and throw them in jail just like that. Twitter usage has exploded. It, it's just it's become insane. The things that are being discussed right now on, on Twitter – in Saudi Arabia were unthinkable five years ago. People are talking about corruption and they're criticizing religious leaders and they're challenging religious leaders. Granted, it's not just happening freely without risks. Just uh, about a day or two ago, a Saudi liberal blogger, um, Raif Badawi, has been flogged in public 50 times and it's the first of, of his lashings and, and, and floggings that he's going to get to complete 1,000 lashings. It's ridiculous. So this man set up an online website and called it the Free Liberal Saudis, and because of that, he, he was considered to be someone who insulted Islam and so on and so forth. So there are many, many risks of, of, you know, that people go through just for, for doing stuff online. Once again, are these transformations, are these shifts in consciousness being, you know, enacted in, in, in public life, have they translated into real solid action on the ground and political change? No, and that's not going to be the case, quite frankly, for quite some time. But there is a real shift in consciousness happening, and it's pretty exciting. And this is just Saudi Arabia. I haven't even talked about Jordan or Egypt or Morocco or Tunisia. You know, all these different countries have other things going on, but you really have this shift. And so I believe that with technology and with media, Shifting and also, you know, just with the demographic shift, as as the younger people start taking on positions of power and becoming leaders, I, I really believe that 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 there is um, there is there there is there's a lot of hope for for very positive change, and um, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Once again, but the change is happening at least at a very you know social level behind the scenes, and it's a, it's a change in consciousness. Well, that is. Uh... You know, like it may be that behind closed doors in people's homes, uh, a quiet revolution is taking place in the Islamic world, and it may really be that that we can put our hope in primarily. Uh, I know that's where I'm tending to go with this. But as as I kind of feel into that as a general thing, I want to. I find myself wanting to return to to really getting the benefit of your story and and how you know you've you are a living embodiment of these changes and you've described a lot of this very vividly and very personally in your book. So why don't we turn around and go back all the way to your childhood and, you know, take us to your earliest spiritual experiences in your neighborhood mosque, uh, the frustrations, the cognitive dissonance as you describe it. And, 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 you know, take us through a little bit of your the origins of your story. Yeah. Well, you see, Terry, you know, I was born in northern Sudan in Khartoum to Afro-Arab parents. You know, both I would describe them as, you know, pious and religious, but very spiritually oriented. You know, Sudan is heavily influenced by Sufism. And so my dad has a very, you know, strong Sufi orientation, you know, the, the way that he grew up and he was raised. So I was born in northern Sudan, <clears throat> but by the time I was a child, we had already moved to Qatar, Doha, Qatar, 
um, in the Arabian Peninsula, right next to Saudi Arabia. So there is a child, <clears throat> you know, the, the neighborhood mosque was a fascinating building, really. Ever since I was a kid, I would hear the call to prayer, and there was just something so beautifully haunting about it. It would echo in the distance, and, and you know, my, my dad went very regularly, and he would pray and come back, pray and come back. And I wanted to learn how to recite the Quran melodically, as I describe it, and, and I wanted to to learn how to give that call to prayer because it was just so moving, so moving. And I wanted to have that ability to be able to move people um, with words, with recitations that, that can echo from the minaret. And so I, by myself, without my parents encouraging me, I went and I checked out the mosque and I discovered that they had Quran recitation classes and Quran memorization classes, right? So you memorize the Quran and you learn how to recite it in the proper way. And, and it's an extensive study that a lot of children go through. And so I went to join. And it's, it's just, it's a feeling of bliss. It's, it's, it's a very empowering, plastic, euphoric feeling where you really feel like you, you are one with, with the entire universe. And and and, but 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 not in this way where, you know, it's it's calm and it's heartfelt and it's subdued, but there's a real intensity to it. There's a real strong charge, um, you know, with the dome above your head, with, with the reverb. I mean, it's just you feel it in your body. And so we would sit there and we would recite and we we would learn, and that was so empowering. It, it felt so real. It wasn't in my imagination. Mm. It wasn't some hallucination. It wasn't an illusion. It felt real. It was so visceral. And of course, at that mm. young age, I didn't have the language. I didn't have the language to describe that feeling. I didn't have the language, you know, to say, "Oh, wow," you know, it was an experience of transcendence. Um, and even until today, I still try to find the right words. But I knew from a very young age that that feeling, that experience, that I was, you know that I was having, that, that that state of consciousness, that altered state that I was able to access, it was real, and it had a lot of power, and it was, it was very intense. It was a really strong charger. It made you feel invincible. It really did. It was not a calm, subdued kind of spirituality. It had a very strong character to it. And so I would feel that. Unfortunately, however, then, after that, we would sit down, with one of the teachers who was assigned to us. And we would talk about theology, and we would talk about God, and he would tell us about how God is almighty, all-knowing, and he knows everything. And so then I would ask, well, if he knows everything, does, does he know the future? Of course he does, Amir. Of course he knows the future. Well, if he knows the future, then does he know if I'm going to heaven or hell? Of course he does, <laughs> wait a second, that doesn't make any freaking sense. If he knows if I'm going to heaven or hell, then how can life be a test? How can this be a test? This is this whole thing that we're going through. I thought you just said that this is a test, a test for our faith, a test for our character, you know, so that we, we can follow the righteous path. But, but he already knows. He already knows the outcome. It doesn't make sense. And there I was struggling with, you know, the whole concept of free will and, and faith at a young age, even though I didn't have the vocabulary for it. And so that was confusing. That just did not add up. It didn't make sense. 
Not only that, um, unfortunately, this particular teacher who was assigned to us would also talk about the infidels, and how we need to spread Islamic law around the world, and how we need to purify the world of sin, and so on and so forth. And something about that just, just didn't sit well with me. And so I remember one day after classes, he told all the kids to go back home, and I stayed back. I stayed back, and I was the only one left there. And it was like a scene out of a movie, frankly. You know, he switched off all the lights except for one light. He, he kept it on. And we sat right underneath that light, and it was just him and me. And he was telling me, son, why are you asking so many questions? And I told him, I just want to understand. You know, I, I feel this thing in, in, in my chest right here. And I was pointing at that visceral feeling of confusion and of cognitive dissonance, knowing no idea what the hell it was. And I was trying to seek advice from this figure of authority whom I had entrusted myself to. So he sits there and he tells me, this, this, this feeling in your chest, it's right here. And I'm like, wow, he knows. Yes, it's right here. Yes. And I say, yes. And he tells me, son, that's the voice of Satan. That's the voice of the devil. He's... He's making you doubt. That's why you have all these questions. So from now on, anytime you get that feeling in your chest, remember that that is the voice of the devil inside of you, and you just have to ask God for forgiveness and seek refuge in your Lord. And that voice will cease to be there, and you will be okay. Because otherwise, you will be led astray to go to hell. And he spends 45 minutes detailing the horrors of hell to me, a kid who at that time was about seven, you know, six or seven years old, maybe eight, eight years old at the very most. He spends about 45 minutes detailing the horrors of hell about how my flesh will be charred and how I would be burned alive and how my private part will shrivel into dust. And then how after that, God will recreate me all over again so that the torture will continue. So I emerge from the mosque and I... And I leave, and as soon as I put my sandals on, I burst into tears, and I'm horrified, and I run back home. And what am I left with with that for quite some time? The ability to access that altered state, which I knew felt so real and so profound. And at the same time, on the other hand, I had all these questions that caused such terrible cognitive dissonance, and I didn't know what it was. So every time I got it, I would just ask for forgiveness and seek refuge in my Lord. And that begs the question of what happened next and how that stuckness, which, you know, at the level of healthy human development, you know, uh, this kind of uh, double bind, this cul-de-sac, this... uh, uh, inculcation of treating your own doubt as if it were the voice of Satan, uh, you know, it feels a little bit like a form of, 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 of child abuse, you know, but, but you were yeah, bound it in it. You were bound in it. So, so, you know, from, from reading your book, I know that, you know, a lot changed when you moved to Malaysia, but, but, you know, well, why don't you just take us the next steps of how you found your way past that stuck point? Right. You know, that stuck point, I appreciate that you referred to that as child abuse, and it really was, and I think it was perhaps one of the worst forms of abuse, and that's mental abuse. 
and I had no idea that it was going on at the time. And yet, you know, this thing is normative. It's normative in, in, in too many houses of worship. And that became part of me, and I had no idea that it became part of me. So after Qatar, what happened was my dad got a, a better job opportunity. He had always wanted to put us in, you know, better educational, you know, systems, better, better educational systems, better schools. And, you know, my dad had attained his Ph.D. from the United States, from the University of Wisconsin Medicine back in the 70s. And so as much as he wanted us to have, you know, a, a traditionalist, you know, sort of upbringing, he also wanted us to have access to modern Western education. And so when the opportunity for that came, we moved to Malaysia where the employer promised him and said to him, you know what, we're going to pay for all your kids' education. And so he enrolled us in international schools. And what international schools are are basically Western schools that are set up, you know, in many countries overseas. And they are there to take in kids, you know, to to take in kids who, who come from diplomatic families right, diplomatic families that travel around, they want to put their kids in, you know, in those kinds of schools. Um, expats who work at corporations overseas and want to put their kids in those schools. So those what those, that, that, that's what those schools are for. And, you know, they're quite expensive. And, um, you know, they're, they're much better set up, frankly. So my dad took up the offer. We moved to Malaysia. And there I was in Malaysia in my new school, a British international school with kids from all over the world and girls, right? (laughs) Now boys and girls are mixing, right? And here I am, this little kid coming from a conservative, traditionalist Muslim country, Qatar, and I arrived in Malaysia and I was 10. I was 10 at the time. And here I am in my school. Indian kids who are Hindu, Chinese kids who are Buddhists, Australians, you know, people from New Zealand, Christians, and so on and so forth. And, and I still vividly remember this, and I talk about it in the book, and I talk about it also in the video trailer of the book. You know, I, I came back home from school one day, and, and I asked my mom, and I told her, you know, Mom, can I be friends with the infidel kids? And she just looked at me, and she's like, what kind of stupid question is that? You know, since when do we judge people by the religious affiliation? Because the way she grew up in, in Khartoum in the older days, which were tolerant and diverse, she had Christian friends, you know, Christian friends who were Coptic. Um, my dad ha- had Christian friends too in, in the University of Khartoum, Northern Sudan. He even had a Sudanese Jewish friend. This was before the whole Arab-Israeli conflict. So they had access to some of those experiences. I didn't. In Qatar, everybody was Muslim. Everyone in my school was Muslim. We were all young kids, and it was a very conservative environment. And now I'm in Malaysia. So what happens? The voice of doubt. The voice of Satan. Why? Because I was not supposed to trust the infidels. The infidels weren't supposed to be nice people. The infidels were supposed to be really mean. But many of these kids were actually really nice, and I wanted to be friends with them. But can I be friends with them? I'm not supposed to be friends with them. I'm I'm supposed to mistrust them. I'm supposed to, you know, be wary of them. And so I tell this stuff to my mom, and she's like, what kind of nonsense were they teaching you in that mosque? See, because they didn't even know what was going on. Right? They didn't even know because when I would come back home, they would just say, oh, so what did you learn? Oh, I learned how to recite this part and this part and that part. And, you know, that's it. It just seemed like a normal day. It didn't seem like anything wrong was going on at the time. So I didn't really mention much to them. But they had no idea that the specific teacher who was assigned to me in Qatar had a fundamentalist orientation and this very, you know, dogmatic, you know, sort of politicized, um, hateful view of the other, right, with a very religious conception of, of, of seeing things. 
So Malaysia happened. School happened. And over time, I just, I tried to avoid that voice of doubt, and I listened to my mom. Don't judge people by their disaffiliation. If they're nice to you, if they respect you, it doesn't matter where they're from, who they are. Just be nice to them, too, and you can be friends with them. So I started becoming friends with them. So all of a sudden, the social aspect of my reality started shifting, and all these new experiences started coming into my life. And the questions kept coming back, but every time they kept coming back, I would just push them aside. I would just sweep doubt under the rug and hope that it would disappear. Right? Yeah, just like you were told. Yep. And then later on, of course, when I enrolled in university, this was when the huge, huge, huge life-transforming incident happened. I discovered the liberal Arab blogosphere by accident on the internet. This was 2006, right? Early 2006. And I was online and I was just looking for stuff, you know, about the ancient Nubian civilization, ancient Egyptian civilization, trying to understand my identity, trying to understand my own history and my heritage. And I came across a blog called the, the Big Pharaoh which was by this secular Egyptian blogger who was, who was very, very outspoken. He was anonymous, right? He didn't write with his real name. He was, his name was the Big Pharaoh. That's it. And he talked about God and sex and does God exist and the Quran, is it really the, the, the true word of God and, and human rights and women's rights and just, you know, and LGBT rights and are they ever going to take root in the Arab world? And I was just, I was blown away. I was, from the moment that I discovered that blog, I became obsessed because through that blog, I discovered other liberal Arab blogs and I discovered the entire Arab blogosphere. You know, the liberal Arab blogosphere, this was back in 2006, way before the Arab Spring. This was the seed. This was when it was just starting. Rebellious youth online speaking their minds freely, the majority of whom were anonymous. And I was obsessed because I thought to myself, oh, my God goodness, all those questions that I had growing up in relation to religion, other people, politics, all those questions that I, that I was told not to ask and that I was told to ignore. Here are all these people asking those questions publicly, boldly, openly, frankly, and discussing them. They're discussing them. They're not being swept under the rug. And and that had a huge transformative effect on me. You know, I, I remember the day very vividly also when I came across the quote, which is often attributed to Voltaire, but it's not really by him. And the quote goes like this, I disapprove of what you say, but I will fight to the death to defend your right to say it. That completely blew me away because up until that point, I would hear about democracy and democracy and liberalism. Like there were these intellectual ideas, notions. But that quote hit me so hard. All of a sudden, I understood what it meant to be a democratic individual who supports liberal democracy, who believes in a conception of liberal democracy. I understood that viscerally. Why? And and that that, that happened in a way because this voice of doubt that you were told was the voice of Satan that you were suppressing that you were trying to manage 
suddenly when you saw people freely discussing things, something just felt right about it, and the kind of self-division that you had been inflicting on yourself suddenly just was obvious to you as a kind of unhealthy way of being, and that just that fresh, honest recognition just rose up in you? Is that how it happened? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I would describe it as a powerful, you know, spiritual experience even, because, I mean, at the end of the day, there isn't spirituality about congruence. Isn't spirituality about reconciling our, you know, inner lives so that we're more at peace and, you know, we're, we're you know, more, um, um, you know, pra- so, we, so we can practice more integrity, mm-hmm. right? So we can be more aligned with, with, with our deepest sense of who we are and our ethos just as, as human beings. And, and if we do that right, you know, then that can stem from a place of love from a place of grace, from a place of acceptance, from a place of peace. Isn't that what we all want at the end of the day? And so to live your life every day, every day, you know, feeling so incongruent and, and just feeling so much pain inside, it, it, it was frustrating. You know, enough was enough. And so that quote was a huge revelation. And, and there was another reason for, for that. It was because by then I had started to blog. You see, I reached out to this big pharaoh blogger, and I asked him, hey, have you come across any Sudanese blogs? And he said, well, not really, not, not that I know of, at least. And I was disappointed because I'm like, well, what do the Sudanese guys think, you know, in relation to, to ideas and notions that are very specific to Sudan? And he said to me, well, why don't you just, why don't you be the first? Why don't you start a blog? And I, and I thought to myself, and I told him, I'm like, well, what do I know? I don't know anything about you know, Sudanese politics. I don't know much about Sudanese, you know, state of affairs. Like, well, what am I going to write? I'm just a kid. I'm just a kid. And back then, how old was I? I was, I think I was 19 or 20. Let me see. Yeah, I was, you know, I was, I was young. I was young, and, 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 I, and I was still inarticulate. But here's what he said. He said, you have a, a lot of questions, don't you? I said, yes, I have a lot of questions, and I have a lot of stories. He's like, well, we'll just share that then. Ask questions publicly, ask questions openly, and tell stories. And then as you learn, you know, you'll do what you got to do. I mean, to paraphrase, obviously. And so I started the blog. But here's what happened when I started blogging. I started asking some bold questions. And I was anonymous. Keep that in mind. The Sudanese thinker was an anonymous blog. Here's what happened. I started getting hate mail. I started getting threats from people who didn't like that I was rocking the boat. And so when I was getting those threats, it just baffled me, and I thought to myself, why would someone be so upset about me just asking these questions? I, I, I honestly just want to know the answer. And that's why the quote was so relevant. I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was so relevant. And so that, in a way, politicized you. Because you could see the suppressive nature, and and in a way, your own development, I guess, was just blossoming in your own being, in your mind, in your consciousness, and you were seeing this retrogressive attempt to suppress your own development. And so something in the inherent uh, intelligence of your being that was reaching to take more complex perspectives kind of had to take a stand for its own health and possibility, I guess. Is that accurate? Absolutely, 100%. Because let's think about it. Can we develop spiritually 
if we have a lot of cognitive dissonance and confusion that we don't allow ourselves to sort out. The thing is, before you can have clarity, you need to allow yourself to experience confusion. And then clarity can emerge from that. Clarity can happen after that. But if we're not even allowing ourselves to experience confusion, if we're not even allowing our inner voices to, to, to speak up and, and, and to sort things out and, and to dialogue internally, and then we're constantly practicing self-censorship, self-repression, because we've been told that there are certain red lines that we should not cross. And now these red lines are part of us. They're part of our own psyche. They're part of our own conditioning. If we can't even have this inquiry internally within ourselves, how can we develop spiritually? In order for us to access higher states of consciousness, higher levels of development, I need to be able to break free from my current development and dislodge the things that need to be dislodged. But if I don't even have the internal courage and capacity to be able to do that, because I've been told that if I dislodge this and I dislodge that, I am a bad person, I am going to hell, and I am committing a sin against God. Boom, what happens? I stay locked in. I stay locked in with my current beliefs, and, and, and I become imprisoned. And that is the state that so many people are in because they're struggling with their upbringing. They're living in a world that is modern and that is changing very rapidly. And they're trying to find their, their place in the world, but they haven't been equipped with the tools, with the skills to experience that inquiry and to actually delve into it and to sort things out for themselves. And so you have a lot of cognitive dissonance, which is also part of the reason why we don't hear very loud, very unequivocal, very clear condemnations when it comes to things like the right to commit blasphemy and the, the, you know, the right to apostasy. We do hear a lot about you know, terrorism and people condemning that, but we don't hear necessarily things that have to do with liberal values because there is a cultural fault line. Um, and people struggle with it. People really, really struggle with it because of cognitive dissonance. The tools aren't there to help them experience that inquiry and go through it and, and you know, just to think about things critically. But but in a way, in writing your blog, you probably catalyzed a lot of people just the way the big Pharaoh catalyzed you. And in writing your book, I hope even more people. How, how are you experiencing that there's that you're just one example of a whole wave of people who are going through a similar kind of awakening? 100%. Hence the reason for my optimism ultimately. There's a lot that's going on that's worrying. There's a lot that's going around you know, that, that, that's happening that makes me concerned, that, that makes me worried, that, that makes me sad, that makes me heartbroken, um, that makes me just feel angry, you know? But, but there's, there's a lot of pain. But despite that, despite that, I am ultimately optimistic in the long run. I think in the short term, unfortunately, I'm, I'm afraid there's going to be quite a lot of suffering. In some cases, tremendous suffering in places like Syria. I mean, we have images coming out of Syria now of young children because of winter, you know, and because of snow, freezing to death. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking. You know, so in some places, there, there's going to be more suffering and more tragedy in the short term. But in the long run, I am optimistic because, Terry, every two to three months, you know, it's interesting. I have Google Alerts set up for my name. You know, I, I get alerts or I get an email from someone telling me, you know, I read this blog post that you wrote about five years ago about X, Y, Z. And I just want you to know that it really changed things for me. Thank you. I, I, I get, you know, an alert for an article 
um, where a blogger is being interviewed and that blogger is being asked, you know, so who inspired you to, to become a journalist? You know, well, before I was a journalist, I was a blogger. And the person who inspired me to start blogging was, um, you know, this guy who ran a blog called The Sudanese Thinker. He just revealed his identity recently, and his name is Amir Ahmed Nasser. And I'm just blown away, and I'm like, wow, my blog was having that impact on people? And I had no idea. I'm just sitting there grappling with my own demons, trying to resolve my own inner struggles. But in doing that publicly, there I was inspiring so many people, so many of whom I probably will never know about, and so many of whom I have yet to meet. And so it's a huge ripple effect. And that's what I was referring to earlier about a change in consciousness. My consciousness has shifted. I tried to speak up. Guess what happened? My book got banned and I had to come and seek political asylum here in Canada, which I'm now very grateful to call home. I'm still going to remain engaged in the Arab world, but I am one person who took a stance that is, you know, bolder than usual. And um, now, does that mean that people like me don't exist just because they aren't speaking up loudly? No, absolutely not. There are many, many out there who exist. It's just we have yet to see that translate into real-life action and political transformation. I think we've seen the real-life action during the initial stage of the Arab Spring. But after we, the youth, mobilized and managed to get hundreds of thousands of people out onto the streets, where we failed is in winning at the ballot box because the Islamist parties, the religious parties, they had the mosques, they had very effective ways of organizing, they had clear hierarchies, they were able to mobilize the voters and, and trick them and, you know, just see them with so many lives, unfortunately, and, and they won significantly. But we, the youth, we knew how to play protest in the public squares, but we had no idea how to set up a political party very quickly and to win votes. And so that was a huge failure on our part. Um, mm. Will we get another? You know, will we get another chance? Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't think we'll get another chance anytime soon. But we can still continue the transformation in consciousness. We can still continue on that agenda, on that path to change more minds and change more hearts. So that when the right time comes, at least there are many more of us who are now ready and who can step out and do what needs to be done. So you really see it as a generational transformation. Yes. That it's and, really and these why, younger people, this bulge, this youth bulge, you, you feel that so many of them, simply because they're getting their news from all those different places, since they're getting educated in a different way, since they are multilingual, they are learning other languages besides Arabic, there's beginning to be a, a, a multi-perspectival awareness that's permeating even the, the mainstream of, of, of people of that age. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's not to say that there isn't ignorance and that there aren't, you know, youth who are corrupt and, 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 you know, who are attracted to the murderous ideology of ISIS or who at least sympathize with it. Of course there are. There are segments such as that, but they're less paternalistic. So even the youth, for instance, let's say if we take the Muslim Brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, is an Islamist organization, very, very illiberal, illiberal. Um, they don't believe in equality for women. You know, they took over for a while and, and they started polarizing Egyptian society just to such an extreme that then, you know, the military came and took over and now we're in a worse situation. But even if you look at the Muslim Brotherhood, their youth, the youth of the Muslim Brotherhood are very different from the senior leadership. I have a lot of disagreements with the youth of the Muslim Brotherhood, but I'll tell you what, they're a lot better than their leaders from previous generations because those youth are not as paternalistic they're not as authoritarian, right? And 
they're they're more accepting of individuality and of you know individual self-expression basically. They're still conservative. There's still a lot of you know points of disagreement, very strong, but there is still the ability to exchange ideas with them in in a more fluid manner. And mm, so mm. taking that into account, these things aren't going to disappear. We're still going to have them even when the youth take over and become the next leaders. But the youth who are emerging are more flexible. They're more worldly. And I guess you could say they're more globalized. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to return a little bit to your own process because we only kind of got to the place where you became the blogger, but you went through a lot. And for a while you were an atheist and, and uh, or at least an agnostic and, and then evolved ultimately into reclaiming a transrational spirituality through discovering Ken Wilbur in an integral view. Um, you know, I'd love for you to at least tell that story before we have our break. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, here's how it articulated, and here's how it kind of traced the phases of that transformation. By the time I arrived in Malaysia, you know, I was very much at a blue meme sort of level, very traditionalist kind of worldview, and w- with a good dose of red. <laughs> I got to tell you that, right? A really good you know, dose of red, and I don't mean good as in, like, good and positive. No, it's actually quite pathological, you know. And so lots of lots of, lots of, of blue, lots of red, very traditionalist, but still kind of with a tribal conception. And then I arrive at school, and my school, the one that I went to when I was a kid, you know, who just arrived at Malaysia, the international school, it was very postmodern, very green meme, you know, very multicultural, very pluralistic. Um, those were the ethos, really. And so what was missing for me was the modernist um, perspective, the, the modernist outlook. There was no way I was going to jump from traditionalist, you know, with, with, with some tribal and magic mystic and, 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 and to straight away to just, you know, pluralistic, green me, multiculturalism, yay, let's all be one together and be happy and, you know, just be one big human family. It wasn't going to happen. And if anything, my school days created more cognitive dissonance, created more internal pain, more struggle. And I just I just tried to avoid that. So so no transformation really happened until I discovered the blogosphere. And until I discovered quotes like, you know, um, I disapprove of what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. Because now all of a sudden I felt that it was okay for me to access my own voice of doubt, to listen to that finally after years and years of blocking it out. Not only that, but ironically, it was a Jewish reader also who read my blog and who was a big fan of the blog. He was a psychiatrist. And he emailed me, and, you know, we used to exchange messages back and forth. And I told him about my experience. And I say ironic because I was taught that the Jews are infidels and that they're evil, yada, yada, yada. But here was this Jewish psychiatrist who was emailing. And he didn't know my real name because I was still anonymous. When I described the experience, and he actually said to me, it seems like you're experiencing a lot, a lot of cognitive dissonance. I'm like, well, what is this cognitive dissonance thing he just mentioned? I've never heard of that. So when I looked that up also in Wikipedia, that was another huge moment of transformation. It was just, wow. It's like all of a sudden this light bulb went on, and, and it was like this major revelation. That, oh, my goodness, there's actually a scientific explanation for what I was going through. It is not the voice of Satan. It is not the voice of doubt. 
um, you know, it's 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 not it's not Satan, it's not the devil. It's just it's normal. It's cognitive dissonance. It's because I was holding conflicting beliefs and conflicting ideas at the same time and trying to resolve them for many years, but I wasn't able to. So when that happened, plus you know the, the fact that that I read that quote and now I was able to access my voice of doubt, the transformation because I think things were bottled up for so long, the transformation happened really fast. I started questioning religion. Um, and I actually approached the inquiry systematically. You know, I started with Sharia law. Then I looked at the Hadith, the sayings of the Prophet. Then the the history and the origins and the nature of the Quran. Is it revealed? Is it not revealed? And so on and so forth. The life of the Prophet systematically. And then it got to a point where pretty much everything crumbled. But when that happened, I thought that I would be free. I thought that I would experience liberation, and I was so looking forward to that feeling. I was so looking forward to accessing that state and knowing what it's like to just be free. But as soon as everything collapsed, there I was standing in the midst of the rubble of the house of Islam, my Islam, my Islam, that I had just completely systematically destroyed. And instead of feeling free, I felt immense pain because all of a sudden, I didn't know who I was anymore, you know, because in the act of destroying my own house of Islam, I ended up unknowingly destroying my own identity. So there I was, and I didn't know who I was anymore. I didn't know whether I was an Arab. I didn't know whether I was a Muslim. I didn't know whether I was Sudanese. I didn't even know what it meant, you know, to, to have access to those identities anymore. It's just they were just gone. So there was this gaping void, and it was so painful. And I had to live with that for quite some time. Now, I did enjoy being finally able to, to just question everything in my mind and to explore all sorts of ideas. I swear to God, Terry, like, this, this might sound like a hilarious description, but all of a sudden I felt like I was in Disneyland. Mentally, in my mind, I am now in Disneyland because any, every idea, any and every idea was no longer taboo. I could question <laughs> Anything. I could, I, I could go on any ride. I can have any kinds of cotton candy. I can go on a crazy sugar high. Like, any idea is accessible now. No more voice of doubt. No more Satan. No more nonsense. So mentally, I became very grateful to Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett. Very grateful. Because mentally now, I was free. I was free to think whatever the hell I wanted to think. But I was still feeling this emptiness deep inside. And it was at that time that through some mutual friends, I got to know this person who's really in an integral theory. And I didn't know what it was at the time. The long story short, the book, um, you know, the, the Marriage of Sense and Soul got recommended to me by Ken Wilber, which talks about integral epistemology and the stages of development and worldviews. And... I can't tell you how it felt. When I finished reading that book on, on my way to Turkey, Istanbul, um, I was in tears. I, I, was, I was just in tears. I finally had my answer. I was finally able to make sense of everything. So all of a sudden, my experiences from my school days, you know, pluralistic environment, which started there. And then, of course, there was just more of it, which started there. So that experience, the experience from my childhood um, days in the mosque of, of accessing that that amazing, intense, powerful spiritual space, you know, through recitation, through prayer, 
all these different experiences, finally I was able to rearrange them, and the jigsaw puzzle at last made sense. Everything just kind of fell into place. And I, and I was intuiting that. I was intuiting that, but I struggled so much. And, I, and, you know, from what I know and from what I've experienced is that that is actually how a lot of people come to discover integral theory, that they intuit it and they struggle and they're in pain. And then when they come across the literature, they go, oh, my goodness. This makes sense. This this is exactly what I was trying to intuit and, and, and put together for myself, but I just didn't have the vocabulary and I didn't have the clarity. And so that's how I came to, you know, integral theory and I understood that you can have a, a powerful spiritual conception and, and you can live that and you can embody that, but you don't have to be stuck with dogmatic beliefs that have no basis in reality and that frankly should be vanquished. Well, that is a very beautiful place for us to take our break. You know, I want to get into a deeper uh, conversation about your perception of Islamic spirituality, and maybe we can get into that after the break, along with the questions from uh, from listeners. But uh, it's time for that. And uh, if you if you have uh, called in on your phone, please press star two on your keypad to raise your hand. And if you've uh, tuned in via your computer, type in your question if you're, if you're listening uh, into the window that appears. I'd like to make sure you know how to find out more about Amir. Uh, and the best way, really, if you'd like to dive deeper into the intimate account of Amir's journey of spiritual awakening out of fundamentalist dogmatism and into an integral worldview, I strongly recommend Pick up a copy of his book, My Islam, How Fundamentalism Stole My Mind and Doubt Freed My Soul, which was banned in Malaysia and in Sudan uh, and forced him to seek and thankfully attain political asylum in Canada. Uh, this book, I think I mentioned earlier, was recommended by Foreign Policy Magazine as among 25 books to read in 2013. Ken Wilber praised it as an important and significant book, especially at this time in our history, and the right message at the right time from the right person. Just go to Amazon, get your copy in either hardcover or Kindle format. And please note that Amir will be giving away his author royalty proceeds to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, as well as one laptop per child, which means your purchase also helps support good causes. Additionally, I want you to be aware of my work and some of my offerings. Uh, even if you're on the mailing list for Beyond Awakening, you're not necessarily on my personal email list, which is how you'll hear about other important aspects of my work. To do that, you need to go to terrypatton.com and sign up for my newsletter. There you'll hear about things like, uh, for example, the series of blog posts I've been writing on what I call the negotiations over the great marriage contract for the most important cultural shift of our time, the marriage of science and spirit. Part two of that series, Why Sam Harris Matters, has gone a little bit viral. Uh, and I invite you to go there and find out what all the fuss is about. That's terrypatton.com. You'll also find information about my upcoming events, including the introductory evening and four-day seminar I'll be co-leading with the remarkable scholar and poet, really the roomie of our time, Andrew Harvey. The open evening will be in Berkeley, Wednesday, March 4th, Death and Rebirth, the Transformation of Our Time. And on March 5th through 8th, we'll co-facilitate Radiant Embodiment and Initiatory Journey. 
go to landing.terrypatton.com and you'll see the full details about this daring exploration at the edge of sacred activism. That's landing.terrypatton.com. At the end of this public conversation, I'll say a little more about what's coming up on Beyond Awakening, including a dialogue with Andrew Harvey and Reggie Ray and some others. But now let's take a look at the questions and, uh, and continue. <clears throat> but before I take anybody else's question, I have one. I just have got to get in, Amir. You know, having traveled this distance, I'd really like to hear you talk about your perception of Islamic spirituality, you know. You said some things about the haunting qualities that you experienced when you were young. And and now, you know, you've you've dabbled in Buddhist meditation and other forms of uh spirituality that are popular here in the West and comparing your experience of Islamic spirituality to the states of consciousness that are facilitated by spiritual practices and other traditions, what can you say about its character and qualities and what it contributes and what you're valuing about it, in what ways you're still you know, identified with it or valuing it? I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'd definitely say that Islamic spirituality has its own flavor that sets it apart quite a bit. I, I think all the different traditions have something unique to offer in terms of the state that you access. And of course, it also has to do, you know, with you as an individual and, and your own temperament, your own spiritual temperament. Um, different people experience different spiritual traditions, you know, and in various ways, depending on their own individual uh, makeup. Let's put it that way. For me, I've had the experience of sitting in a church in New York. I don't remember the name of the church, but it's an old church. It's quite large and big and grand, and it's in Manhattan. And I sat there, and I just, you know, joined a friend. I really wanted to go into the church, and so I went along with her. She's Sudanese-Russian, um, lives in New York, you know, great New York people, bringing, you know, bringing people together, right? And so we sat there, and, and the quality of the experience, you know, there was a certain beautiful grace, you know, just, just, that, that's how I would describe what I felt in that church. It was just a feeling of grace, and it was beautiful, and I would even say it was, it was refined, it had a certain elegance, I think perhaps because of the aesthetics and, and the imagery that was present there in the church. So that's what I felt. I also had the memorable experience of spending time with Hindu priests in Bali in, a, in an old Balinese temple that's hundreds and hundreds of years old. And I spent about, you know, a full day there with them. Um, in the beginning, there was a lot of discussions, a lot of talk, and then the rest of it, there was a lot of meditation, and I was dressed up in the traditional Balinese garb. And the quality of that experience, you know, I would describe it almost as an it was a beautiful form of spirituality, but it was almost like it was earthbound, earthbound spirituality. And it it facilitated a connection with nature almost. You know, it, it had this quality of nature associated to it. I can't, can't describe it. And 
it wasn't necessarily, you know, an experience of grace because in the church, you know, you hear the music and you hear the people around you, whereas in the Balinese temple, it was just complete peace and quiet and bliss because you're sitting down in silent meditation. And then there is the priest who, you know, every now and then would kind of ohm and, you know, would would say, you know, certain chants, but in a very deep voice, you know, like it's almost like a bass, bassy kind of voice. So that, that was the quality to it. And you could feel the water, you know, for, from a nearby stream or something. I don't remember what it was. So that was that. Within the Islamic context, and, and this has been consistently the case, um, regardless of the kind of mosque that I am in, regardless of the country, of the city, I think Islamic spirituality, because of the way that, you know, Islam emerged and the context that it emerged in, culturally and especially socio-politically. I think Islamic spirituality is more in touch with the tragic dimension of human existence. You know, unlike Buddhism, which, and again here I'm kind of simplifying, says that, you know, attachment creates suffering. You don't really have that conception as, as a very core part of Islamic spirituality. If anything, there's an acknowledgement, there's an acceptance of the tragic, horrendous, horrible aspect of human reality, of human existence. And because there's an acceptance of it, you know, that from a sociopolitical perspective can create a lot of problems because you're not as much invested as, you know, as you could be in, in creating a better life and, and making sure that life is, is, is stable life is better and so there's always this acceptance you know that the people have and say okay well you know what in the in the in the afterlife i could just have whatever i want in the afterlife but but for now i'm just going to accept god's will and i'm going to go along with it you know so that's kind of the negative aspect but but there are some people who are able to balance things out and in my experience it's, it's a very powerful thing to to be able to sit in a very powerful meditative state where there's a lot of, you know, rhythmic recitation, very melodic, very rhythmic recitation that puts you in a trance and you are with a lot of people, like hundreds of people. It's a big mosque. It's thousands of people in unison, in unison, not on their phones, you know, playing Angry Birds, waiting for the, you know, sermon to be over, although that, you know, is the case, you know, in, you know, you know, for, for a lot of people, especially young people. But you know, you're, you're there with thousands and in unison. You know, you're, you're, you're reciting and you're saying things like, Subhanallah, 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 Subhanallah. Alhamdulillah, 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 Alhamdulillah. Allahu Akbar. And then it repeats, and everybody joins in. It's it's just wow, you know, the, the the feeling of community, the intensity that that happens there, the energy that gets built up. There's such a powerful, strong charge, and so it's almost like in that state you're not escaping the tragic aspect of human life. You know, you you, you are not trying to get away from it and find a sense of grace and peace necessarily when you are in that, you know, group experience. If anything, you're accepting the world as it is and you are surrendering to the will of God and it comes with a certain intensity and power. 
that I certainly find extremely gratifying and, and just, just amazing. It, it has, it has this, this, this effect that just really charges you up. And I don't get that experience in other contexts that, that I've, you know, been into and other practices that I've delved, um, delved into and dabbled with. Having said that, at the same time, when you practice Islamic spirituality on your own individually, that intensity, that charge isn't the same. Like that happens usually in a mosque, in a big group setting when there are people around. But when you're alone, you are able to access experiences of grace, experiences of, you know, just heartfelt gratitude, immense heartfelt gratitude, and just deep acceptance, you know. But once again, I, I don't get the sense that it has this, you know, desire to kind of distance itself away from the tragic mm. aspect of human mm. life. There's a strong acceptance and there's a strong acknowledgement of that, that this is the will of God and that it's okay and that it's just part of life. And you also find a lot of this, by the way, in Eastern literature. You know, Western literature, if we look at Western folklore, you know, literature is probably too broad, but let's say folklore, you know, old folklore. You know, it's, I mean, and, and I'm kind of simplifying here. It's kind of, you know, once upon a time, you know, so-and-so met so, and then something bad happened, and then they overcame it, and they lived happily ever after. You know, that tends to be the format in a lot of Western folklore and many different stories that then get, you know, translated. Well, th those are often the sanitized versions that are popular now. <laughs> Grimm's fairy tales yes. are pretty grim. <laughs> oh, no, no, for, for sure. And, 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 and there's a lot of grim stuff in, you know, existentialist literature, right? Lots and lots of grim stuff, especially if you look at the Russian um, yeah. you know, Russian literature, um, but in, in in Eastern in Eastern folklore, you know the happily ever after is usually the the exception. The norm is so and so met so, and bad things happened, and then more bad things happened. But you know they accepted it and they went along with it and they smiled and they did their best and they adapted and they tried to live happily ever after. But then something else really really bad happened this time and. You know, after that, they just, yeah, they just went along and they surrendered to the will of God. You, you tend to find this a lot. It tends to be the norm and not the exception. And I don't know why, but I think just because, you know, perhaps it has something to do with, with the fact that, you know, Islam emerged in an arid desert environment. You know, there, there wasn't plenty, you know, of food and plenty of water and greenery, you know, over there to experience. I mean, it was harsh environment to live in harsh conditions and so you had to have a strong you know sense of honor and an honor code where you know you kept your cattle and nobody could mess with you and take your cattle away from you you know because it was about survival and because of the harsh circumstances people would die people would get lost and so culturally from an evolutionary perspective how can you adapt to that well you know beliefs that say well it's the will of god and don't worry the afterlife is freaking awesome Let's admit it, those, those beliefs do have very, you know, very useful um, qualities, even if they have no basis in reality. So I think all of these things have played a role in, in making Islamic spirituality have this sort of unique flavor. And once again, this is really my own individual experience, but from assessing it and looking at, you know, the experiences of other people, I think there's a lot, a lot of truth to it. And so I, I do hold this opinion quite strongly, although, you know, I, I am still learning and I am still growing and, I, and, I, and I'm still on my journey, really. Mm. Yeah. Well, that was 
Really interesting. Thanks so much for sharing that, Amir. There are a number of really great questions that have come in via the web, and there's also, uh, I want to take a live question here from someone else, get another voice on the line before I go to them. Let me open up the lines for uh, a caller from the 720 area code who's raised uh, your hand. Please uh, introduce yourself. Uh, yes, this is Melanie. Um, I just appreciate and feel so grateful um, that you presented this today, Terry, with Amir. Uh, it's much to take in and um, and savor and reflect on, but I'm so grateful. It helps me as I'm connecting the dots in my own life. I thank you so very much. Lots of blessings mm. to you guys. Thanks thank so you. much, Melanie. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, well, we've got a, a, a number of rich questions. There's a lot of appreciation. Uh, Rachel, uh, Erin, uh, friend, friend here in the Bay Area, wrote in, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm loving Amir. My own journey through a traditional background so echoes, and I'm so grateful for him speaking out. I've been working with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for decades. It's broken my heart so often to hear that one organizing principle in the Arab world seems to be a vicious anti-Israeli and sometimes anti-Jewish hatred. Could Amir speak to this? Yes. Um, you know, it, it is an extremely unfortunate fact of political culture in the Arab world and in the wider, you know, the, the wider Middle East. Um, you know, I will say... Unfortunately, also, you know, Israel continues to commit a lot of injustices, in my opinion, and you know, there's still the occupation, all of that. Having said that, and given that, also, you know, having said that, the states in the Arab world, the governments, they have systematically, systematically nurtured feelings of, you know, anti-Israeli sentiments, and I would even say just outright anti-Semitism. Because it's beneficial for them. It's beneficial for them to deflect people's attention and, and to point their attention towards Israel and to blame Israel for things and, and to come up with ridiculous conspiracy theories. It's, it's politically very useful for these governments to do that. It still continues to work, sadly. It still has a lot of appeal, but not as much as in the old days. That's starting to change. And thankfully, it's starting to change because of the Internet to a great degree, because a lot of young people understand that, you know what, if the Arab Germans really cared about the Palestinians, they would actually help the Palestinians. But all they do is just try to deflect blame onto Israel because it's politically useful. So, so people aren't falling for that trick anymore. You know, I always used to like to say that Israel is a weapon of mass distraction for Arab regimes, but that weapon of mass distraction isn't working well anymore. And so that's really, you know, what's going on on the Arab side and the Middle East, side, including Turkey. You know, there, there is that unfortunate reality. Um, and frankly, you know, when, when Israel does what it does to the Palestinians, regardless of what you may think, the images that come out and that flood, you know, our social media and that we see on our mobile phones and on TV, people see those images and then they hear what the governments are telling them, even though that the governments are just using propaganda, you know, they connect the dots and then those sentiments grow even more, unfortunately. And so we need to find a more conducive way of doing things. I, I really don't know what's going to happen in regard to that conflict. It's something that's just, 
like I've just kind of like put my, you know, I've thrown my hands up in the air and said, you know what, we're, we're just going to have to see where it goes. It's, it's, it's a messy situation, unfortunately. Yeah. Thank you. Um, there's another interesting question that came in from Deborah in Ashland, Oregon, who asks, um, what do you think is really behind the events in France and Germany? Is there a behind-the-scenes manipulation of the public to reignite hatred for Muslims? And what do you feel would be a positive integral position to hold on this unfolding event? Wow. Um, I, I don't know, honestly. I mean, is, 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 is there any sort of, you know, conspiracy to, to stir up anti-Muslim sentiments, not really. You know, well, one of the things we, we need to, to, keep in, to keep in perspective, you know, especially here in, in North America when we look at France, is that France has a very, very troubled relationship with its Muslim communities because Algeria was, was a colony, was a French colony um, for over 100 years. And in the 1950s, during the Algerian War for Independence, over 1.5 million Algerians died and, you know, hundreds of thousands of French died as well. But, you know, ultimately, Algeria won its independence, although at a very high price, and there still continues to be problems. So part of that relationship involved a lot of people moving over to France and who were also taken there during World War One to fight in the French military. You know, many of them Algerians, you know, who are Muslim. So there is that backdrop. The two brothers who went and, you know, killed the, the, the cartoonists and the journalists, they were from Algerian origins. That's something that needs to be taken into perspective. Um, and so France, when it comes to this Muslim minority, it's, it's, it's a very contentious relationship because the, the majority of that minority are of Algerian origins. Whereas when it comes to the other Muslims, you know, sometimes they're more well integrated. Having said all of that and put that as kind of a background just for people to know, there is a real problem, you know, um, among some quarters of the Muslim community. You know, yes, they're disenfranchised, there are no opportunities, you know, these two brothers, you know, felt like they didn't belong in French society and so on and so forth. But having said that, it doesn't matter. Even if people experience that, people should never have to go to the extent, you know, of doing what they did. It was absolutely murderous, it was criminal, and it was appalling. And it does also have to do with the, with the fact that blasphemy is still a huge taboo in, in, in Muslim culture and you know, ridiculing the Prophet Muhammad for a lot of Muslims. I mean, that's just unacceptable. And so here, when it comes to the liberal values of free speech, people people really struggle with that. You know, I think Muslims in the United States, compared to Muslims in other Western countries, are actually very well integrated in the United States, and they fully accept the American Constitution. You have a few people here and there who have trouble with that, but for the most part, you know, there's full acceptance. In France... That is not the case. It's a contentious relationship. And, you know, this is the latest latest result. And I'm afraid we're going to see more attacks like this. I, I don't mean to be, you know, the, the uh, a messenger of bad news, but they will, they will more likely, more likely than not, be more attacks like this. And the thing that really worries me is the rise of the far right, because when you combine the rise of the far right in Europe, who have very fascist tendencies, and you take that and you also factor in the rise of, you know, Muslim extremists within certain communities in Europe, you combine these two things, it's a bad, bad combination. And so I'm glad to see that, 
this huge march happened to the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. But in order to remedy things in the long term, politicians in Europe, you know, who are on the left, who are centrists, really need to step up and speak about the root causes and to do so forcefully and, and honestly, because if they don't, that vacuum is going to be filled up by the far right, which will be very troublesome. And, of course, the Muslim communities have a lot of work to do themselves. Thank you. Um, now, uh, a little flood of last-minute questions. Let me uh, give you a chance to respond maybe a little more briefly to, to several. Um, first one that came in earlier, uh, a fellow named Abdul from uh, Vancouver was yeah. – uh, saying, uh, hey, if you want to understand Islamic spirituality, don't begin a discussion by asking about politics in present times. Muslims could start discussions of Christianity with questions about why six million Jews were killed in Europe or why aboriginal natives of the United States are unfairly treated or why whites and blacks of South Africa used Bible books which were not the same. I totally understand your questions are not deliberate attempts to malign Islam, but a major change is required in the dialogue between Muslims and Westerners. I thought that was an interesting perspective to be raised, and I'd be curious if you'd want to comment on that. You know, I, I think Abdul is you know, trying to point out that, and I think he has a point to an extent in in, in the sense that it's, you know, when we talk about Islamic spirituality, the esoteric aspects of Islam, as I said earlier in the dialogue, it has so much to offer, right? Islamic spirituality has so much to offer from an esoteric perspective. There's so much richness. There's so much beauty. The difficulty, however, in discussing that, you know, in a dialogue like this is we can't ignore the backdrop, which is all the sociopolitical stuff that's happening, Um does, does, does this create the ideal circumstances for the ideal conversation? No. And I think perhaps that's something that, you know, Abdul is, is pointing at. But nevertheless, it is what it is. You know, we, we can talk about American ideals and American democracy sometimes without talking about the injustice of many aspects of U.S. foreign policy. You know, and so these aspects get mixed up together. Um, and so in a dialogue like this, you know, you and I, Terry, we're okay with exploring all these different aspects together. And I think we've done our best to, to highlight each distinct, you know, theme um, as best as possible. There's, just, there's a lot to talk about, right? <laughs> Can't cover yeah. it all. Yeah, good. It, 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 it's just, it, it's good. One of the things that I think is confusing to uh those of us, we are really now, I mean, partly because of the violence and because of the wars in the Middle East, and because of the deconstruction of the old stasis in the Islamic world, what was a blur to us, where most Americans, you know, remember right after 9-11, there were people... Uh, throwing Molotov cocktails at, at businesses owned by Sikhs because they couldn't tell the difference between a Sikh and, and, and a Muslim. The, the level yeah. of ignorance in the West about uh, the incredible diversity and richness in the Islamic world was you know, completely opaque. And so now we, we, we get that there's controversy, that there's different you know, most people are aware of Sunni and Shia, but but even that is still caricatured. And an and ability to enter into real dialogue means being able to see one another. And when the other seems so 
blurred in your view that they all look the same to you or, or, or you're only able to make very few discriminations among the differences, there's, there's very little depth of empathy and mutual understanding. And that uh, uh, is something that, you know, at, I think this conversation with you brings even more nuance because we can see you know, you've let us into the inner process of your uh, struggling with your cognitive dissonance, coming into that period of liberation in Disneyland where all the thoughts were were fair game, and then waking up into a, an ability to understand development and an integral view, and and how that then affects your perspectives on the different forms of spirituality that you've encountered since you've left and your reflections and appreciations of Islamic spirituality. I mean, it's 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 giving us a a, a view that I think is educating us, and I'm very grateful for that. There are many comments here that are mainly expressions of appreciation and gratitude because seeing you and understanding your journey and feeling a kinship with you is really a gift to a lot of listeners. And I, and I just want to let you know that. Uh, I feel it too, but I'm, I'm seeing it so strongly in so many of the comments that are being uh, written in. Um, I do want to ask you to stay for one more question, even though we're toward the end of our time. Fahim mm -hmm. in London uh, asks an interesting question. I think this was typed in after you offered your comments about the different flavors of different traditions. Could you also say that is true of all the religions of the book with regard to the life conditions at the emergence of the religion? That is, that maybe all the religions of the book have more of an appreciation. I think he means uh, more of an appreciation of of the you know the pain and suffering of life. That they're less transcendent than those of the East. Um, you know, I agree. I think the Judeo-Christian Islamic traditions have a strong orientation towards justice and do have an acceptance and an acknowledgement of the tragic aspect of human life. However, I will say that that is true for those practicing those religions, those three monotheistic religions, within contexts like the Middle East um, in that terrain. You know, if you look at American Jews and you look at Israeli Jews, they're very different. It's interesting. When, you know, when I hung out with Israeli Jews, in America, I, I felt like I was hanging out with Middle Easterners. They had that more rugged, you know, sense of spirituality. Their practice was just, it was just different. Whereas those who've been raised and born, you know, and, and cultured in America, you know, in let's say a place like the Bay Area, which is, you know, more postmodern, there was a very different conception which, which kind of misses out on, on this strong orientation towards justice and justice and, and the, the acknowledgement, the acceptance of the tragic aspect of, of, of human human life. So, yes, the monotheistic religions, when practiced in the traditional context, yes, they have that. But when you look at Buddhism, for instance, and we talked about this, Terry, you know, B Buddhism emerged at a time when there were very strong armies and there was a lot of stability politically and socially. And so a lot of the monks, I mean, they had plenty of time to go and to explore their consciousness. But with Muslims and Islam, for instance, and even Christianity before it got reformed, you know, way before the Enlightenment, you know, like even during the Crusades, very similar to Islam, you know, those individuals who were 
spiritual and who are religious. And I mean, you know, the word spiritual, not in the way that we would mean it today, but in, in their domain, in their context, those times, they were warriors as well. They had to go fight. And then they would stop the fighting in the military of a battlefield. And then they would stop praying. And then they would fast. And then they would go fight and kill some more. So all these different aspects were combined together. Whereas with the emergence of Buddhism, that was a very different case. And so I think Buddhism had a lot of advantages in that regard and that it was able to develop a body of work and techniques and ways of practice that really enabled you to explore consciousness fully. And, and in a sense, I mean, I dare say that, you know, some of what Buddhism has to offer, and I'm not an expert, I'm still learning, but based on what I know right now, um, I would say that in some cases it has more superior tools to offer, you know, in those specific inquiries. Well, this is a great conversation, Amir. It could go on a lot longer, but we are now finally out of time. Uh, before I tell you what's coming up in the next few weeks, uh, a few reminders. If you value what you're getting here, please support our work by letting others know about it. They can register for this series at beyondawakeningseries.com. And if you want to learn more about Amir, Please buy and read My Islam, How Fundamentalism Stole My Mind and Doubt Freed My Soul. You're also invited to go to terrypatton.com to sign up for my personal mailing list and newsletter and landing.terrypatton.com to find out about my upcoming teaching event with Andrew Harvey in early March. And now what's coming up here on Beyond Awakening, I'm going to be broadcasting another daring conversation at the edge with Andrew Harvey in two weeks on January 25th. I'll be engaging a public conversation on February 8th with the remarkable senior Tibetan Buddhist teacher, Reggie Ray. On March 29th, I'll be speaking with best-selling author and teacher about the soul, Mark Nepo. Other upcoming guests will include Sally Kempton, Thomas Hubel, and Dustin DePerna. Thank you so much for joining Amir and me today. Thank you Goodbye. for hosting, Terry. Yeah. Thank you very much. And just thank you so much, Amir. This was a blast. And thank you, everybody, for joining us.